0: Hi, I'm John Titor with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I am happy to be home. I've been traveling and I'm back. I've got my kids in the other room, so I hope they don't yell and scream today. We're probably going to go swimming soon. It's warm out uh, from the north. We've had a lot of these wildfires creep in our area. There's a lot of haze. There was haze through the Midwest when I was driving back home. Uh, So just pay attention to that. Be safe. The other piece of it is uh, I want to thank a client. Uh, One of my clients has really been involved recently in a lot of work that I've been doing and supporting me. I don't want to mention his name specifically, but he knows who he is. And I wanted to thank you know his support. I also had a listener come out to my property recently and help me. That was really, really nice. I've been busy and to have that help all day, I really appreciate him as well. I won't mention his name, but I want to thank him and all the feedback I've been getting a lot of inquiries lately. I have done some virtual reviews for people. I mean, I do enjoy doing that, but it's not the full content and management volume I'd like to give you all, but I have been doing more of those and I may continue to do those to help people. Um, There's people in foreign places that I can't get to necessarily. So I want to support people in uh, every respect that I can. The third thing is, you know, please keep giving that feedback. Positive remarks are huge and I will give somebody a hat this month. So I appreciate you know all the support, and uh, it's been it's been great. It's been uh, great to get the feedback, and like I said, a lot of inquiries, and I appreciate that. You know we're nearing hunting season. I'm still in the swing of clients and focusing on helping people kind of get to the end game and uh, get situated this season. I've got a bunch of turnkey properties. I'll talk a little bit about those in the next coming months. I think I have uh, three turnkey properties that I'll be working on here over the next few months, cutting timber and doing layout, etc. So I can talk. little bit more about that to you folks and let you know kind of the services I provide and kind of my strategy. All right, enough with that stuff. Um, I got Mitchell's shirt back and Mitch and I have uh, talked quite a bit recently. And we've also talked a little bit previously on this podcast about food plots and management. He's way more in the weeds on this stuff than I am. So I'm excited to have him back. Give me a second. Let me get him on. Mitchell, what's going on, brother? How you doing? I'm doing well, John.
1: Thanks. And how are you doing?
0: Good. I'm back. I'm happy we connected. Uh, I've got to get this podcast out or I'm going to get in trouble. So uh, I'm happy that you and I uh, have some time. You're on the road right now and uh, you were working all day. So hopefully your mind's in a good place.
1: It's it's on uh, food plots and cropping and things like that. So you caught me at the perfect
0: time. (laughs) Okay. So I want to frame this topic. And I want to frame it in a way where people start to kind of understand the significance of this. For a lot of you food plotters or croppers or whatever you want to call farmers, um, we always run into the issue of deficiencies. It could be deficiencies based on lack of water. It could be deficiencies based on, we'll say, I don't know, mineral content, macro, micronutrients, things of that nature. So we're going to talk about some of the, I think, key crops that people have planted recently, corn being one of those, and we're going to talk about the issues. And you know, Mitchell's kind of one of those people that works in the field all day, and he's got a good, I guess, handle on this type of stuff, and I, I think he's, he's probably one of our best uh, opportunities to ask some detailed questions. So, Mitch, let me ask you a few questions. We've had some big drought recently, and obviously that slowed the growth. Uh, but corn, explicitly, and I want to talk about looking at the, you know, the, the leaf depending on the stage of the plant, and starting to di- diagnose some of the deficiencies that, you know, people may be experiencing, and maybe what they can do about it. You know, application side of things. What what can we do to fix the problem? Yeah, that's a
1: great thing. So you know. I had done a post not too long ago on Instagram that was talking about um, uh, a field of corn I was in that had uh, symptoms that were showing magnesium and potassium deficiency in that corn. And I kind of made a note saying, you know, it's not because we don't have magnesium and potassium in the soil. The problem that we were running into with with that specific field is we didn't have any water to allow water-soluble nutrients into that plant. We we, we literally, the, the area that I work in, we went almost five weeks without a single measurable rain event. And, you know, those plants are going to be doing, you know, they're annual plants. They're, they're trying to do everything they possibly can to stay alive so they can produce grain and then they die. You know, they got one shot. And where... What you end up seeing then to keep alive, plants, especially corn, corn is a great example of this. The lower leaves of those plants, they're like nutrient storage units. And when we start to lose water-soluble nutrients from the soil and the roots cannot take them in, you start to see the plants translocate nutrients into the whorl of the plant, the center portion of the plant, you know, corn's growing from, in, you know, inwards out. And uh, it's trying to, to keep that energy and growing so it can produce grain. So, you know, I was kind of explaining in this situation, you know, um, how do you diagnose something like that? And, and how do you know what the right thing to do is? You know, pre-season, you know, I, I always preface this by saying it's important. Guys, get your soil samples, you know, get all the sampling, the information you need to make the best decisions. But at the end of the day, the best think the best test there is in the field to indicate what's going on is let the plants tell you what is wrong what is deficient and uh, that was kind of what was going on here and uh, i was seeing specific symptoms and specific nutrients that weren't being taken in now to address it uh my prescription in that case was pray for rain and sunshine and it will alleviate that pressure because (laughs) the soil tests we have ample uh ample tea And we have ample K and all the things we need there to allow that crop to grow proficiently. We just need water.
0: Yeah, and praying for rain is is, uh, something I think a lot of us, you know, probably will have to do in in some capacity over the next several years because of the, you know, deception that that we all try not to pay attention to. But the reality of it is we we get these, you know, intense changes in, in climate whether it's, you know, weather conditions that are extreme, you know, extreme drought, extreme rain, and vice versa. And, you know, I I recognize at least one thing is looking at the plant specifically and looking at its symptoms. You know, a lot of times with magnesium deficiencies, you know, you may see, you know, I, I think lighter colored greens or darker colored greens get exposed in that leaf. Now, I don't know the specifics here with the corn plant that you were dealing with, but you know, today uh, on my way home, I saw pivot systems going out and providing water and nutrients in those systems. Uh, I've talked a little bit about how to create drought-tolerant food plots or food plots that can handle, you know, more drought in some instances. Obviously, cover crops are helpful in those, those circumstances as well. You know, alternatively, we talked about moisturizing or wetting, you know, kind of the landscape, utilizing catchment ponds you know, spillment areas, things like that. Uh, I talked about the introduction of, you know, sprinkler systems. So it's leveraging some of those, you know, I'll say, you know, natural opportunities and being a, a little innovative, and I think that's important for, for us. And, and corn specifically, you know, I have sprayed, let's see, foliars on, on corn. Uh, that would include copper and, and, and zinc that's sometimes there'll be deficiencies in those areas now, I, I typically see a lot you know on sandy soils you know I'll deal with you know maybe some iron deficiencies with with you know, clovers and, and, and things of that nature beans I've seen that happen as well so so I have some experience with this but I'm, I'm not nearly as experienced as you Mitch and I, I want to talk a little bit more about other symptoms in corn specifically as the plant starts to develop because I know a lot of people, at least this is what I've seen with, with local clients and people that I work with is they wait for a certain stage, they hope for a heavy rain, and they and then they throw nitrogen on the plant. And I, I think, you know, that could be a good thing or bad thing. And I want to know what your take is is on that from a supplemental side of things. Is it a necessity? And I think maybe you got to walk back the history of that ground use before you make that determination. You know, what was done in preparation, et cetera?
1: That's a great point, John. You know, there, there's so many factors that come into play as to why you may have a deficiency in one location for another um, you, you were talking about or uh, you were talking about zinc I think in and it, it's very in, you know it's very interesting how one soil type versus another soil type can have a, a greater or lesser impact on that a great example of this I was talking with Al meco from vitalized seed and I, I told him how the the biggest deficiency that we see in our our crops in central Pennsylvania is magnesium deficiency. And that was mind boggling, Tim, because it has the complete opposite end of the spectrum. You know, magnesium is, is, you know, over the top. So, you know, there's definitely something to be said with the soil type and, uh, and knowing some of the backstory, but, you know, to answer your main question that you asked about nitrogen and understanding, you know, how to uh, address these. So first of all, corn corn does not take a lot of nitrogen from a seedling until it gets about up to your knee you know uh when we're talking in an agronomy standpoint we're trying to maximize corn yields um you know corn will take up a couple pounds per acre in in the first few weeks of planting but when you get to about knee high it's and the growth stage be about v5 you take up an exponential amount of nitrogen from that, from from the soil, as much as seven to eight pounds of nitrogen per acre per day. So you can have a, a very specific uptick in what you need. So uh, looking at nitrogen deficiency, what does that look like? Nitrogen deficiency will ultimately look like a pale plant. It won't have that deep dark green color that you have. But another good way of seeing it, and I was talking about earlier about that lower leaf stress on the plant. You'll see those symptoms um on a, on a corn plant the lower leaves if they're very nitrogen stressed are going to have an inverted v and it's almost going to look like an arrowhead the tip of the plant is going to be all yellow and it's going to point back towards the stalk of the plant going towards the rib so like the mid rib of that corn leaf it's going to get narrow and narrow. It's going to make a yellow point facing back towards, and that's a telltale sign that we have nitrogen deficiency. Uh, I talked about potassium earlier. Potassium is usually the outside edges of the leaves. If they're if they're bright yellow on the outside edges of those lower leaves, that's a common potassium deficiency. So um, that's kind of what they look like. Uh, do you want me to talk a little bit about how I, I typically address some of those?
0: Yeah, I would. I'd like you to dig into that as well.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked about corn taking a lot of nitrogen in at a young plant. That doesn't mean I don't want to put any nitrogen on at planting in our in our row crop system. We want to make sure that um, we never clean the table, so to speak. You know, think about food plots. We uh, we try to keep something growing at most plateau. That's why I don't, talk, I don't like tilling, because you till it, you clean the table, and then you got to restart. Well, think about the same thing with nutrients to a corn plant. I don't ever want there to be a, uh, a deficiency in available nitrogen. Um, I want it to level off at most and then take it up as it needs it. So a lot of the time, we'll, we'll start corn with a little bit of nitrogen just to get it going to give it a little bit of seedling vigor. And hopefully that nitrogen, depending on the forms in which we apply it, will stay around long enough until you get to that stage where it's going to take a lot up. Then you have an opportunity, and, and we're talking conventional systems with uh, commercial-type fertilizers. Um, then when you get into that knee-high stage and you want to you know, give it a shot of nitrogen, whether that's a broadcast or a liquid or something like that, yeah, that's a great opportunity to split-apply that nitrogen. And that's, John, that's, you know, we're talking specifically about commercial fertilizer alone. And that is, that is a, a very volatile and mobile form of nitrogen. There, there's, there's many other forms of nitrogen we can deliver to a corn plant, um, more biological means of doing that in a food plot system. I'm just talking mostly from the agronomic standpoint, how we, we do things in uh, most of the row crops around here.
0: Yeah, can I pull on that thread a little bit? So let's talk a little bit about a food plot system and you know those not necessarily focused, you know, I want to say completely on yield, right? There could be a plant health component to this. We're looking maybe at, you know, ear sizes and and not necessarily volume per se. And so, you know, the interspersion of corn and beans, we've talked about that previously on the podcast. But how would the combination of of plant synergies or what other options do we have in that capacity? Because I got some things that I do a little bit with corn that might be a little bit unique. So I may mention that, but I want to hear your perspective.
1: Man, that's a moving target with corn. Corn can be a little bit finicky when you're talking about it from an agricultural sense. Just because the applications with our equipment and making things efficient become very hard. But I will say, you know, monocultures are, are... They're on their own, I mean, and that's why they get spoon-fed. But when we have, uh, you know, multi species or or companion crops within that, um, they communicate within that mycorrhizal fungi and relay sensors of what each plant needs. And, And the perfect example I can give you is I have a grower I work with who's trying to do everything he can to grow corn as organically as possible and not use tillage. And and one of the things he shared with me, and it it makes a lot of sense, is he puts a companion crop of buckwheat in with that corn. And buckwheat does such a good job of shading out weed pressures, and it it also does a good job of not competing with that corn when it's planted in between. Now, there's, you know, buckwheat's one species. There's a ton of other species. And it's all a matter of fine-tuning ratios of plants that we're not too heavy on a grass, too heavy on a, on a legume, you know, that we're competing with our corn. It's the, it's finding the ratios that mix and allow nutrients to uh, still move into the plant and not out-compete with those companion crops. And that, that's a tricky one. And I don't know that anybody has their, uh, you know, ha- has the, the that pinned down and, and figured out completely. It's always a moving target. But I will say, um, low seeding rates of a companion crop in corn at food plot Typically, it is a really good
0: thing to do. Yeah, that intercropping concept is interesting. There's also the alternative is just thinking about your sequencing of plants. I've had some clients that have planted into alfalfa. I've personally planted into clover, terminated in strips. So, terminate the clover in strips after planting uh, the corn per se. There are some techniques that are a little unique, and in those instances, you know, you've got to be careful if you have grasses in there, so competing plants you know, a grass with a grass, particularly with corn, corn doesn't do well with competition. And the other piece that I've noticed is in sandy soils where I've worked in a couple areas, you know, a lot of zinc deficiencies for some reason, uh, some of these micros tend to leach. And so, you know, we're talking about different issues. So having covers in, in some sandy soils can be really beneficial, hard to do, you know, hard to plan and hard to deal with, I think weed pressure in, in some instances, but certainly something to think about. and. I also wanted to kind of comment, I think, you know, the example of just trying to try new things and new concepts that, you know, may or may not be new to people listening to this podcast, but, you know, some of these more prevalent crops like corn, you know, there is, I guess they call it a nutrient raper. Uh, That's uh, the non-political term for that particular crop. And they do take up, you know, it's, it's 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 a dense stalk. That uh, consumes uh, you know a fair amount of nutrients, so if you 're a small food plotter and you have you know small areas to work with it 's not necessarily bad to push aside some of these these crops like corn. one you know maybe the consumptive value isn 't as great as some other particular plant uh, it 's got limited seasonal use, although you know I find deer if it 's uh, you know a well complexing plant. Uh, I, I find them actually nibbling on it all season long in my food plots. I've had, I've had examples of that. And, again, I just think that it's different in every application. It's a great screening option, obviously, for for people, um, I like to put it on the opposite side of my access point. I see some people use it for, you know, access screening. I would recommend against that. So, just a few other, you know, I guess non-essential tidbits, but things that I think about with corn specifically. All right, Mitchell, I want to pop over. I want to talk about soybeans because I think soybeans are the next on the list. Very popular crop, something that people, you know, love planting. Uh, whether it's just, you know, a straight grain bean or it's a combination of a forage grain or just forage bean. You know, what deficiencies or symptoms are you seeing right now in the field? I think I've seen some deficiencies, particularly with the drought, and uh, it's been on grain beans, and, and I'm not sure the specifics there. Uh, I didn't get out of the car and take a look, but I kind of want to see what you're maybe diagnosing in the field with, with, uh, with beans at this point.
1: I had some interesting conversations this week, John, with some of my clients, and we had fields that were planted one month different, and the fields that were planted a month later I think are almost to a point where they're going to catch up in growth with the beans that were planted a month before. And I keep getting getting asked the same question. Why are these beans not growing? Why are these beans not growing? And back to that dry weather, when you have those dry conditions, you know, soybeans take atmospheric nitrogen and they fix it with those nodule, nodules on the roots and then it produces nitrogen for that plant. And you start pulling out soybeans, that have sat in dry, dry ground for a uh, quite a long time, there's no reason for that soybean to establish a, a connection with the, with the fungi in that soil and produce nodules. There's no moisture. Moisture is required in order for that to happen. So what I'm finding in a lot of soybeans is they don't have any vigor because they're not taking in nitrogen. They're actually nitrogen and sulfur deficient in that case. And uh, what's the solution to that? Well, again, sunshine and rain will do wonders for soybeans. But if we want to give them a little bit of a boost, believe it or not, some of our production soybeans will go on with a foliar package of some sort. And a lot of the things that we're addressing, the, the norm is going to have potassium and boron in that mix because those are commonly deficient at this time, but we're actually going to be pushing a little bit higher nitrogen and sulfur in that application just to try to stimulate that roots, get them to catch up. And hopefully that they, they do exactly that they'll catch up. They'll start to elongate. They'll start to start to throw flowers on and produce their own nitrogen and and just give them that boost that they need.
0: Yeah. And I think people don't recognize the importance of sulfur and, um, I, I I've, I've applied sulfur in, in a foliar spray, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with, with that. And I, and I can't say anything different than you recommended. Again, I don't work in your field per se, but I echo everything you're suggesting right now. So at this stage, at least with beans, you know, you may see some yellowing. And that's specifically, you know, some, I'll say veiny beans, and you'll, you'll you may see some potassium deficiencies as as well, and you know it's hard to you know fully address from uh, a car ride, you know, looking out in the field. But you know, I, I can see yellowing of plants in, in different areas, and and maybe even some pale browns, you know, when when you have a sulfur deficiency, uh, at least f- from my experience, Mitch. So let's let's dig a little bit more. So as these these plants recover, you know, we, we've prayed for rain. You know, God has granted us a great opportunity, whether, you know, we're, we're collecting rainwater in the systems that I've talked about or we just get a lush of uh, rainfall for an extended period and the plant starts growing. You know, are there any additives or things that we should probably consider with, with beans themselves to kind of promote, you know, this, this growth potential, maximizing yield, etc.? What are some thoughts there? Yeah, so
1: when I pull plant samples in ag fields, The two most common deficiencies in my region, and I think this is very specific to my region and and my soil types, what we find is boron is always at the cusp of low and sufficient as is magnesium. There's a couple reasons for that in ag fields. The reason that magnesium is a problem is we've got so much history in our location with using high calcium limestone for, for decades in addition, we've got lots of dairy manure that has added calcium to it. In addition, we've got lots of layer manure that has added calcium to it. So we've got an imbalance of calcium to magnesium. That's what causes that magnesium deficiency. Boron, on the other hand, you know, let's just, just throw some numbers in production agriculture out. 60-bushel crop per acre soybeans, they're going to pull out a significant amount of boron. You're probably looking, you know, a, you know, a handful of pounds, you're probably looking, 10 pounds, something like that. And uh, we keep driving yield up continuously, trying to push that extra yield. And I think we're demanding more from the system. And boron, I think, is the first thing on the list that I see depleted in my area. So for me in my location, if we're going to start to really push that envelope, we're going to put foliars on there. Some of the big ones for me are commonly boron, potassium, and sulfur. Because, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about sulfur here in a little bit if we talk about alfalfa. But uh, sulfur deficiency is a growing problem uh, in the eastern part here where I'm
0: at. Yeah, and and, and great point. Uh, actually, very similar to my area, so I echo. You know, one thing, you know, bor- boron is, is you know, just just serves where it's an anion. Like, let's just be clear about that. So it has a tendency to leach. And your point earlier with the high levels of calcium, okay, in and, and some areas... Uh, My particular area where I live, that is the case. It it reduces, you know, boron's availability to the plant. So, you know, in foliar sprays, and I'm not always using foliar sprays, but in, in that example, I think it's an excellent, depending on the plant stage, et cetera, it's an excellent opportunity to kind of replenish it. You know, also, you know, it's important to recognize... There's a there's a relationship to boron and potassium uptake. I think that's that's critical and and potassium totally... and potassium is really really important and uh, for, for a lot of things, particularly you know fruiting plants. I think that's that's some things we forget forget about. And and I always think about in, in my particular area, I'm low in phosphorus. There's also mm-hmm. an example in my area where you know we we've got to kind of address each individualistic issue and plant uptake and need. So it's almost individualizing the plant looking at what its expected demands are, looking at the status of the environment, recognizing that not everything is, is being, you know, cycled correctly because of, you know, in some cases with monocrops, to your point earlier, lack of synergy. You know, you're talking about uh, plant uh, plant sensing, or I think well, I would think of another term for that. Plants kind of talk to one another. Um, kinda like synergistic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 thinking about those relationships is, is quorum sensing. Quorum sensing is the terminology I was looking for. Um, and and thinking a little bit more individualistic about the plants and the relationships. So. All right, let's jump ahead. We want to get to the end of this and talk about alfalfa. A lot of fans of alfalfa out there. I think that's a plant that people don't utilize enough on the landscape. I'm working with a lot of clients that love alfalfa, so I wanted to kind of address that topic and issue. So we have an established alfalfa. Maybe it's a newly established alfalfa field. What are you seeing? What are the issues? What's your opinion?
1: I tell you what, alfalfa is a great food plot. I am not discrediting it, but of all the food plots... Um, it's a little bit of a pain in the neck for me for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, you know, clover, alfalfa is a perennial. They're, they're finicky to establish. Once you get them established, they're fine. I think alfalfa is even a little bit more finicky than clover. And then, uh, when you grow alfalfa, you know, I've had this happen for guys where they'll grow alfalfa and have this beautiful looking crop for the first part of spring. Then you get about to right, right now, the time of year we are, and they're like, my alfalfa is dying or it's got some kind of nutrient deficiency. What's going on in my alfalfa? And I look at it and the, the big common thing that we have is we have a lot of potato leaf hopper and it, it causes yellowing in those leaves. It, they, they kind of have a piercing suckling uh, mouthpiece and, and it, they kind of like basically drain the, the leaf structure and it makes it yellow and makes it look nasty. So you know, we end up having to spray insecticides, which I don't like to do when you've got a monocrop of, 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 of anything. I don't like to spray insecticides, period. Um, but when you're talking about managing for maximum monocrop you know, mono biomass, um, that's one of the things to do in order to keep alfalfa really, really going. Another thing that, you know, we touched on um, with, with corn and beans, and I've seen a lot of in alfalfa lately, is sulfur deficiency. You know, sulfur is one of those things. When I started doing the work I'm doing, uh, we were told by many, many people that we will probably not see sulfur deficiency for years and years to come for the sole purpose that we used to have so much acid rain that drifted into this part of the country and supplied to our crops with ample amounts of sulfur. Well, you know, Clean Air Act and the things that that has done – has uh, improved that we don't have acid rain and we're not getting sulfur for free anymore and where i'm seeing that the most this year is in alfalfa i'm noticing a lot of knobs and pockets of the field where it's patchy it's very yellow and you and you, you scratch your head and think well is it potassium is it this is it that and i started pulling plant samples and sure enough it's sulfur deficiency and it's it's for for, for alfalfa it's a little bit hard to to, to know it's that unless a, you've got experience, or, or B, you confirm it, because it, it can it can kind of mirror some other plant deficiencies. But it's, it's basically a pale, stunted plant, and uh, that, that's another really common one.
0: Yeah, no, and that's that's quite interesting. And, you know, the potato hopper is another example, um, and I won't, I won't get into specifics, but I've worked recently with somebody and then a company that has recommended some foliar sprays Uh, instead of insecticides to help alleviate that not a topic for here that's specific to that company and what they recommend in that particular instance but there are some options instead of using insecticides so I would caution people when that's their first choice it's not always you know the first choice now I guess in large cropping areas you know that may be the most I guess uh, efficient means to removing those well let's talk a little bit more and and I've got some alfalfa growing. In one of my food plots in kind of a small area and it's it's done pretty well but I've had a cover crop in there so you know although the soils themselves are not as deep as I prefer you know those plants have done uh, as well as they can be a little more spotty so when you have shallow soils you know you limit yourself and you know the plant really needs to to expand right from the root zone so it needs that opportunity but again a saving grace has been intercropping or having other plants you know a part of you know those those uh those strategies and I actually you know if you were to plant wheat uh, as an example with alfalfa and then cut it down at some some point or, or leave it standing depending on you know its density that that's been a helpful means to kind of you know, kind of support, I guess, moisture levels in the soil. And sometimes like we talked earlier without certain levels of moisture, you know, some of these deficiencies are going to creep up on you and they're going to become kind of more apparent as the, as the, as the plant has a hard time uh, transferring energy, you know, throughout its, its body essentially. All right, let's talk a little bit more about alfalfa management I think that's one thing I think people struggle with. I appreciate your your keynotes to this particular plant. But what are things that people can do to manage alfalfa throughout the season? I guess to increase, we'll say, volume. Uh, I know mowing is is something that a lot of people will need to do. Obviously, it's a it's a source of food, so you you do you you do treat it as a forage plant. And obviously, a lot of it's ingested throughout the summer months by you know our favorite critter, the deer. But what are what are some things we can do to kind of maintain and support you know better growth of that particular plant?
1: Yeah, well, first and foremost, uh, weed weed management is very important because the minute you start getting some some grasses and maybe you get some some curly dock or, or you know something along those lines, it starts to choke it out. Starts to thin that stand out, and you know we've talked we've talked about herbicides in the past, and that's probably a little bit of another discussion. But weed management's very important from a nutrient aspect. Um, just to throw some numbers out there, so production alfalfa when we're we're trying to maximize tonnage of alfalfa, and you know we're getting four or five cuttings in a growing year, um, you might be talking about four or five tons per acre in in a in a cutting. That is a lot of biomass that is pulling out of the soil. So in an extreme situation like that, we're probably talking about removing somewhere between four and 500 pounds of potassium out of the soil and removed in that crop. Now, that's extreme. That's not anything that we're going to really see in a food plot world. But the concept is, st- is still the same, right? If we plant a food plot, we get alfalfa that grows vigorously. What's harvesting it? Deer. They're, they're, they're browsing it and all the wobbles. they're, (laughs) they're, they're browsing it. And, um, they don't always, uh, I know, sometimes I know animals don't know the difference between the the dining room table and the the bathroom, but at, for the most part, they'll leave the field and there goes your nutrients. So, you know, we are going to start to see in a, in a monocrop alfalfa system, I do see potassium get depleted a little bit quicker and, uh, and with that, um, calcium is another one. Calcium is another important nutrient. Uh, again, I told you I have uh, calcium-rich environments where I'm at, but there are, are times in extreme management uh, trying to maximize tonnage and quality. You know, we'll put soil amendments on that, that a lot, uh, incorporate calcium in to, uh, to, to really help with the quality of that forage and stuff. Those are kind of the, the, the big ones for me. You know, nitrogen's usually not a concern. If your phosphorus levels in your soils are, are within an optimum range, that's typically not a problem. But I, I will say that um, the, the biggest deficiencies I see in alfalfa recently are going to be that potassium. It's going to be that sulfur and then boron. I, again, I, I swear everything in my area is deficient in boron.
0: Yeah. And join the club. I, I'm in the same boat as you couple things dealt with this over the years is deficient, deficient calcium levels or low calcium levels. It's impacted the, the ability of that plant to be more erect. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that I've got areas in my area that that's one example. The other thing I noticed, and I, I don't know if this is, is exactly correct. So I'm just going to say what I think. And I don't know if this is proven or not. I have seen when you do take a crop off, and you have limited water resources, you know that potassium deficiency uh, amplifies per se. So, you know, trying to think about you know the water retention on the landscape or the water availability, the recent rains is is very important because it makes that potassium available to that plant per se. And then if you have a deficiency uh, ever so present, you know, water will help at least support that if if, if you're you know lacking water in the landscape. So. S- small tidbit. I don't even know if I'm right at that point, but I'm saying what I feel. And, and this is, you know, it's. it's... I, would,
1: I would say that's spot on, John. I think that, okay. that, that, that okay. look is something very accurate because it, we see that a lot in row crops.
0: Okay. All right. So I'm not crazy. That's good. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate the time you took out of your day, you're driving home and um, you know, we've, I've got to get this podcast out today, but I appreciate a lot of information here, folks. And I think, you know, you know, Mitchell's an, an, an expert in this field. This is what he does professionally, right? So, you know, you can always, Mitchell, they can reach out to you. They can communicate with you. You, you communicate. And and obviously you have your Absolutely. podcasts as well. So why don't you pitch your podcast and, and let people know how they can get a hold of you if, if they have any questions.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, I'm the host of the Pennsylvania Woodsman on Sportsman's Empire Network, the same place you'll find John's, you know, John's, podcast here i you know i do instagram i'm not really big on facebook anything i post on instagram goes over to facebook automatically but i'm not real active on that so instagram pennsylvania woodsman podcast i also you can email me uh p a woodsman podcast at gmail.com you can always email me uh one thing i want to leave you guys with we talked about foliar feeding a little bit and i'm i'm pro-foliar feeding, and one of the, the things I've learned um, from ag is one of the best uh, ways to foliar feeder, the most bang for your buck, is foliar feeding when you do it in the early morning hours or late in the evening, and the reason for that is you're doing it in a cooler part of the day, and the stomata of the plant leaf are open. You actually get better nutrient use efficiency when you foliar feed. So don't go out at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the hottest part of the day and expect to have really great results in in that sense. That was one tidbit I wanted to add with these nutrients. But I'm done with my talking, John. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, great point here at the end. We've said that before, and I appreciate you echoing that. And, uh, you know, Mitchell, we appreciate everyone listening to his podcast as well. ton of good information. You've had some stuff recently on elk. Uh, the local elk herd, and I think you had, was it rattlesnakes? Did you have something about rattlesnakes recently, or did I? am I losing I my did, mind?
1: I did, yeah. At heart, I'm all about bow hunting whitetails, and I, I enjoy black bear hunting greatly in Pennsylvania, but, you know, my show is the Pennsylvania Woodsman Showcasing Outdoors, so I've I've been kind of going down some different avenues and learning some some cool things. So, yeah, we did have a rattlesnake hunting episode, and that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to people to think about different things. So, appreciate your support on my show, and please tune into his show. And uh, that's it from us. Talk to you again soon. Yep, likewise. See you. See you, man. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John
1: Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.